You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I chat with Neil Bauer about how to find and analyze great markets to invest in, what you should look for in potential neighborhoods, and how COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, is impacting real estate. What I love about this conversation was we talked a lot about educational things that will help your real estate business, but we also talk about a lot of actionable steps that you can take to get started investing in real estate. I hope you guys enjoy this great episode with Neil Bauer. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I bring back a fan favorite. I had Neil here with me on Millennial Investing, my other show last time. And today, Neil is here joining me on Real Estate Investing. Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me back. For those people who may not have heard our episode together on Millennial Investing, please walk us through your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure. I am a recovering technologist. So got into real estate by mistake. My boss asked me to help build a campus in 2003 for our technology company. And so I got into real estate in reverse. Most people do a single family rental. I started off with a $6 million campus as my first foray into real estate and then sort of fell in love with it. And I've done everything from you know owning two dozen single family homes myself, which I, I still own, to buying about $250 million worth of multifamily assets. I've also done large new construction projects, including one in Provo, Utah, that over $100 million worth of multifamily. Wow. With doing these types of big deals, why did you decide to continue with some of those smaller single family properties? Those are really the first half of my career. So I, I haven't bought any single family properties since 2014. So that was pretty much, I was done at that point. I haven't sold a bunch of them because they made sense. They were cash flowing. You know, I've refinanced them. So they're still part of my portfolio because they're not doing any damage. So do you have a third party property manager that handles all that for you? So it's completely passive? I have a third party property manager. She is my wife. Yes. And she loves it. They're like her babies and she doesn't want to give them away. So I don't bring in a third party property manager. I, I do suggest to everyone that you should have a third party property manager. My wife's quite exceptional at it. So Neil, you've influenced a lot of the way that I invest in real estate. And I'm even working on a book right now on how to invest in real estate long distance using data and technology as its core. How has being a technologist impacted the way that you approach real estate investing? It's not really about technology, Robert. I think what has influenced me is being a data scientist. So when I look at data, when I look at analytics, there's patterns that appear to me. A lot of people that know me think that I'm freaky. And that's why they gave me the nickname, the mad scientist of multifamily, because I I look at a bunch of numbers and start to see correlations. So when I see those patterns and I see repeatable patterns over and over again, if they suggest good things, I do more of them. If they suggest bad things, then I make sure that those things don't happen. So everything that I do in real estate is informed by these patterns and metrics. And you know, I'm, I'm very much into the numbers. So I'm always building dashboards. And once I have a dashboard, I improve a dashboard. Remember, you know, I often see people with dashboard, that what they call a dashboard, and it's terrible because you, you look at it and it's like this crazy Excel spreadsheet with 63 numbers in it. And I say, I want you to think about this word dashboard. What is a dashboard? A dashboard is something that's in the front of a car. 
And by its very nature, we should have maybe like one fifth of a second to look at it. Because if we look at it for two seconds, we're going to hit somebody, right? So isn't the whole point of a dashboard that you need to understand the information very quickly? Well, so what we do at Grow Capitus is we build these extremely elaborate, but very easy to understand dashboards that tell us about the health of our business and every metric that we care about for our properties is in there. And then when we are buying properties and we get an incoming property, we have a elaborate dashboard of metrics around the health of that area, right? So job growth, population growth, income growth, home price growth, crime reduction, poverty levels, all of these are benchmarks that we care about a great deal. And Today, I'm very glad we care about those because you know people have been buying properties in areas that are just absolutely horrific. And I know that in the next 90 days, they will face a tremendous amount of adversity with those properties. And so you very quickly just went through some of those main metrics that you look at. And I know that's part of your five-step system for mm-hmm. market analysis. Mm-hmm. And yep. I want to dive into that. I know you have some metrics at the more macro level, so at the mm-hmm. city level, and then you have mm-hmm. some at the neighborhood level. Let's run through those starting at the macro level or the city level. What specifically are you looking for? I'm going to walk you through all of those. So my first metrics is population growth. And at the moment, I'm looking for population growth between the year 2000 and the year 2017 to be around 21.5%. And given it's 2020, a lot of people ask me, well, why, why 2017? Well, firstly, cities don't change as often. So yes, you can go out and buy data for 2020. I assure you, you'll end up with the same set of cities. And secondly, the 2000 to 2017 information is very easily available on Google. So you can go to Google, type in for something like uh, you know Chattanooga population, and Google will give you a beautiful graph, and, and it'll have the 2000 and the 2017 numbers. The difference between those two numbers is over 21.5%. You're good. And what happens next year? Well, that number goes up. So population growth is that number one, the first out of the five metrics. Why is population growth important and why 21.5%? So the honest answer is that when I did statistical analysis, I ran a bunch of scenarios. And what I found was at a certain point, above a certain percentage of growth, population growth was supporting a lot more rent growth. Population growth drives up rent growth. And we buy apartment properties because we're interested in rent growth. That's what we want. We want a high level of rent growth. And so to get that, you need competition. You need people fighting over the real estate and people fight over the real estate when there's a lot more people. So for example, a place like Detroit, which has been losing population for the last 30 or 40 years, is going to have a lot less competition for those units and a lot more units available, right? Because it used to have a population that was you know, almost 2 million people uh, 40, 50 years ago. So it's built a lot of those units already. So you want to go into an area where there's a lot of population growth because there's a lot of competition for your units. You want as many tenants for your units as possible. So I think you know, it makes an enormous difference. Why 21.5%? What well, the honest answer is, I'm a statistical analysis guy. I've done the math. What I find is today, above that level, you'll see a high level of competition with people fighting over your unit. Below that, that competition is slowly going to start falling away. Now, I'm not saying that don't go into a city if it's at 20% instead of 21.5. That's not the point. My point is that if you're looking at two cities and one of them is over 21.5% and the other one is at 17, you know which one to make. So how about the second metric? What's the second one that you look at? So the second metric is income. So I want the income levels to be increasing in that metro by about 32%. And you get this information at city-data.com. So you know, for any city in the US, type in the name of the city 
And within, a, you scroll down about 12 inches and it'll show you median household income. And you'll notice it gives you two numbers already. In this case, for the second metric, the number is about 32%. So you want the income growth over between 2000 and 2017, between those two benchmark years, to be at least 32% or higher. And once again, the Excel spreadsheet that I give you tells you what should the number be next year? What should it be the year after? So you can keep using this system. The whole point is that I want to make sure that people are not paying for the system. It is meant to be free, completely free. No one should ever charge anything for it. So bottom line, because I'm giving it away for free, the system tells you how to use it next year and the year after and the year after. But in 2020, about a 32% increase in income. Why increase in income? I think that one's pretty common sense, right? You want to increase rents. Well, if their income remains the same, how can you increase rents on people that are not making more money? Yeah. I mean, if their income isn't going up, you can't increase the rents. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to afford it. You can try an increasing rents. Two things will happen. One is you'll either end up with a lot of vacancy or second, they'll end up staying, then they won't have money and you'll end up with lots of delinquency. Both of those are really bad scenarios. In fact, delinquency is even worse than vacancy because you have somebody, the unit's not available for you to re-rent, but you know, you're not getting paid for it. So, so that's a really, really bad scenario. And then number three is home price growth. Now, even though I'm an apartment guy and I buy large apartment complexes, I find that this system still works because I want home price growth in a city that, I, that I'm buying apartments in. Because you know what home price growth is doing, Robert? What it's doing is it's preventing people from buying homes. As the prices go up, every single time you have home prices going up, there's some people at the margins that just had enough money to buy a home and now they're outbid because the home price went up. And those people are actually the best tenants because they wanted a home. They were gathering money, they had down payment, and it's just the prices went up a little bit too far for them and now they can't do it. And guess what? They're going to go into the best apartment unit that they can find. So as I buy apartment properties and I rehab my units, well, those are the tenants that I want. And I can't get enough of those tenants if the home price in the city doesn't keep going up. I constantly need the prices to be inching up a little bit. So there's always these people at the margin falling out and becoming long-term tenants because they can't afford to buy the home prices because of the price increase. So in this case, we're looking for about 41 42%. And so about 42% of an increase, once again, in that 2000 to 2017 timeframe. And where do I find the numbers? Same website, city-data.com. Type in name of your city, scroll down about 12 or 13 inches. And right there, you'll notice median house or condo value. You'll see two numbers. There's going to be a 2000 number. There's going to be a 2017 number. Your goal is not to get five thumbs up. Your goal is to get as many thumbs up as possible for cities that work for you. So what I highly recommend you don't do is if you live in Seattle, don't start plugging in cities that are two hours away from Orlando because you're not going to fly out there often enough. You're not going to check enough properties out. You're just going to buy the first one that comes to mind. So what I'd much rather do is instead of five stars on a city that's 3,000 miles away, I'd like to get four thumbs up on a city that is 200 miles away because you're going to manage it better. You're going to spend more time flying out there. You're going to check out more properties before you buy one. So the system is not some magic bullet. You have to use it with a lot of common sense. And so that is the third metric. I like your rationale behind that third metric because I've heard you explain that to me a couple of times. But the first time I heard you say that, I remember thinking that you had that metric because you wanted the value of your properties or the, even the apartments you're buying to increase in value to take advantage of appreciation. But really, it's not necessarily that. You're really looking for those tenants that are just priced out. I want tenant competition and yeah. I want the best quality of tenants. And the best quality of tenants come in markets where there's consistently 
a creation of new high quality tenants, right? So it works really well. So metric number four is about crime. And once again, it's city-data.com. Scroll down, you'll, you know, on the same page where you were checking out all the other numbers, there's a blue table. Ignore the entire table. The bottom line is blue in color. So it's the only line in the table that's blue in color, and it's called the City Data Crime Index. And what you want to do is the latest year available, which is 2018, not 2017 for crime, you want that number to be lower than 500. So if the city that you're investing in, the crime levels are lower than 500, then you're less likely to have delinquency and all kinds of other issues that come with high crime. And also, you want to look at it from the left to the right and see if crime is decreasing. You want to see a smooth reduction in crime. What I found is nothing is as correlated to an increase in home prices as a smooth reduction in crime. So if you're in a city where that crime is reducing and it's below 500 for the most recent year, then you have a much greater chance of home price appreciation or apartment appreciation. What does that 500 number represent? It's an index. So that it represents nothing in particular, but it's an index. And what I found is below 500, cities tend to have cap rates compress, which pulls up prices. And, and obviously, that's great for you as a, as a real estate investor. But if, if the crime is higher than that, then it tends not to have as much of a positive effect on home pricing. And you want that positive effect on home pricing. And how about your fifth metric? The fifth metric is my favorite, and it's jobs. So jobs matter only in the short term. So I don't have a metric that looks at jobs for the last 17 years or the last 10 years or the last five years. I only look at jobs for the last 12 months. And that information is on a separate website. And perhaps we can give that to your podcast listeners through a link. It's www.bept.com slash employment slash metros. So the department of numbers.com, which is a government website, basically gives you immediate last 12 months job numbers. And this is a page that has pretty much every major city in the, in the US listed, even some smaller ones are listed. And the, the column at the far right shows you the 12 month change in jobs. So obviously, because of the coronavirus, this coming month, pretty much every city in the United States is going to be negative. But in normal times, most cities are positive. And what you want to do is you want to sort by that column and you want to go to a city that has high job growth in the last 12 months because there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of job growth. There's a lot of competition for units because people that were living with mom and dad are now moving out. They're establishing households. The more households you get, the more competition for your unit, for your rental units. So bottom line is 2% job growth is decent. 3%, you're really, really happy. 4% job growth, you're basically buying champagne bottles. 5% job growth, you're dancing naked in the street with your champagne bottle. That's how good job growth is. So try and stay above 3%. If you're in a major metro, two and a half, that's pretty good. Try and stay above three. At four, you're going to be able to raise rent practically at a crazy level. So when we talk about all these metrics, and you mentioned that job growth is your favorite, do you look at them on a weighted basis, if you will? Because you mentioned that you don't have to have all five stars. So what if you have two or three cities that might have three stars or four stars, and now you're comparing the two, but one is you know just the population's growing, but the job growth is actually slow or declining, where you have another city where its job growth is growing like crazy, but population isn't as great. How do you weigh those types of metrics? So I haven't released a version of the system that weighs those metrics. For those of you that are good with Excel, you can weigh my metrics by giving 15, 15, 15, and 15% weightage to the first four metrics and 40% weightage to the jobs. So, so 15, 15, 15, 15, and 40% weightage would be appropriate. 
wow, I, I've done the actual weighting myself in Excel. I've used your spreadsheet. I did not use that specific spread. I didn't know that the job growth was that important or that heavily weighted. Job growth means money. I mean, it, it is the most direct way that people get money in their hands. So it makes an in- incredible difference. So I think that there's nothing like it. You'll see it this month, obviously. We, we had a super powerful economy in February, and today we don't have much of an economy left, right? We are in a complete, orderly, sustained shutdown of the US economy, and we'll start it back up sometime in May. So it's uh, crazy, but it shows how important jobs are. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be sure to put links to all the different resources that Neil mentioned, and of course, his website in the show notes. So everybody listening today, you don't have to memorize it or write it down right now. You can go in the show notes. Everything will be there. I also wanted to mention that I put together an entirely free resource or platform that allows you to use these metrics that Neil is talking about. It allows you to filter them. I follow Neil's strategy very closely. And for me, I got kind of sick of going through every single city individually to try and find a good one because it doesn't allow you to filter through the city. So you had to go through a lot to find a good one. So what I decided to do was there had to be a better way. And so what I did was I created a mechanism or a platform that allows you to filter based on these metrics. And it has all the same data. So you're able to find that. So if you're interested in that as well, you can find that in the show notes. And of course, it's it's 100% free. Now, let's talk about the neighborhood level. You said you have another five metrics for that. What specifically are you looking for there? So the first thing that I'm looking for at the neighborhood level is I'm looking for the poverty level in that neighborhood to be under 20%. 15% is preferable if you can get to it, but it's, it's sort of hard. So if you look at my own investments, you basically benchmark this against the number. I often come in around 14, 16, 16.5%. So I'd love to be at 15%, but that's not a hard stop. Don't go over 20% though, because if you go over 20%, the neighborhood that you're in, those people that the level of poverty is so high that those people don't care as much about their overall credit scores. And so they, you can see a lot of delinquency if you're going over that 20% poverty level. Now, if, you, if you're slightly lazy and you don't mind spending a little bit of money, you can also go to neighborhoodscout.com and pay for a report on that neighborhood on that it's not even a zip code. It's an area smaller than a zip code. So it shows you a micro neighborhood and it gives you that poverty level information that you're looking for. So that's, that's the first metric at a neighborhood level. Now, the second metric is median household income. Once again, Neighborhood Scout will give you this information. You want the median household income to be between 41.5 and 71.5K. Why would you not want it to be higher? Well, nothing wrong with it being higher. It can be $100,000, but the problem is if it's $100,000, you're not going to cash flow in that area because you've moved into like a B plus area. And so your cash flow is not going to be there. Now, if you don't have, if it's your money and it's not investor money, by all means, go beyond that 70K level. But if it's money that you intend to raise from investors, they'll be looking for they're going to be looking for cash flow. And so 41,000 to 71,000 is roughly this sweet spot where you get that cash flow. Below that $41,000 level, again, you have problems because the income levels in that area are so low that you're going to have a lot of delinquency, a lot of churn, that the folks that live there are not going to care about their credit as much. So you might find the rents working in that area, right? I warn people of this. I've seen people go buy properties where the Household income is about 27,000 and rents are at 800 or 900. Those people that live there cannot afford those rents. So you might get those rents for six months. And then after that, the person becomes delinquent. And now you have to spend you know, three months evicting him and then repainting the unit. You're not going to make money that way. So bottom line is 
stay as close to that 40K level as possible. You know, you can go to 35, 36, but if you go to 30, then you might as well not use the system because you're not really listening to the system itself. And the next one is median contract rent. The easiest way to get that information is neighborhoodscout.com, pay for the report. Usually it's 39 bucks a month for 10 reports, by the way. Once again, you, you want to be in a sweet spot there. And that sweet spot is just a tad over $700 to just a bit over 1000 So 700 to 1000 is your sweet sweet spot. If you're buying class B+, plus, you can move that up maybe 100 bucks on, on, the, on the upper end to 1100 But once again, why sweet spot? Because you want that class B, class C tenant. You don't want to end up with that B plus tenant because once again, you're going to pay so much for the property that you won't get cash flow. If it's your money, by all means, go above that $1,000, $1,100 level. Now, keep in mind that rents are much higher in some of the big cities in the US. So I don't have a guideline for you on what that number should be in downtown San Francisco or Manhattan or you know, downtown Portland. It will be much higher. You're going to have to work on that on this particular metric. But the vast majority of the US, the 700 to 1K metric works just fine. I was going to ask that same question about the income. Have you mm-hmm. found the 41K to about 71K to be pretty transferable across the US? Or does that change again if you get to... Because I live up here in the Northeast, and I feel like that might skew a little higher up there. My own property in Texas, where it might skew a little lower. So have you found it to be pretty universal or does it need to be adjusted depending where you are? I think it's universal because it's a range and it's a really big range. I mean, it's 41 to 71K. And if you're in the Northeast or Northwest, you're probably going to end up being skewing closer to the top of that range, right? And that's fine. But what the challenge that I find is that these are benchmarks. Either I could issue a benchmark by state, or I could just give you a general guideline. You've got to understand that that number has to be a little bit higher if you're in the, in the Northeast or in the Northwest. It has to be much higher if you're in California. It has to be much higher if you're in New York, right? So don't use 38K in New York because that person's really poor. I mean, apartments are very expensive in New York. So you've got to make some changes for this. This is a set of guidelines more than a set of rules. How about the last few metrics for the neighborhoods? So there's two more. So unemployment rate, you want to be about no more than 2.5% higher than the city's unemployment rate. The city's unemployment rate is really easy. So let's say your city is Wichita, Kansas. Go to Google, type in Wichita, Kansas unemployment rate. Google will give you a very nice big number that says, okay, Wichita is at 4%. So if Wichita is at 4%, make sure that the neighborhood you're investing in is not higher than 6.5%. So you can be a 2.5% higher than your city's level, but not more than that. Why? Because when a recession starts, and by the way, a recession just started this month, when a recession starts, if that gap is 2.5% now, it's going to go to 7 or 8% when a recession starts. And it becomes very painful at that point because high unemployment means high delinquency, right? So 25 3% at the most, higher than the city's unemployment level, and you're good. Of course, don't use unemployment metrics with this system in the next two or three months because we obviously we're seeing something that's highly unusual. But maybe starting June again, you should be able to apply it when you know all of these people get hired back. We're seeing some very positive trends that they will get hired back uh, sometime in early May. Okay, ethnic mix. This is a very interesting one because it's it's a very subjective metric, right? Metrics are supposed to be objective, but this one's subjective. There's a place on the city data website where you can look at the ethnic mix of the people that are living in that neighborhood. And bottom line is, you want to go into a neighborhood where there's Caucasians and African Americans and Hispanics and Asians. Lots of different ethnicities like that area. That makes marketing much simpler. It's not a racist comment. It's actually 
you want that environment where people of different ethnicities like that area because now you can market to whites and you can market to african americans you can market to latinos and chinese and indians and that fills up your property a lot quicker if all you have is one single ethnicity then your property it's much much harder to market have you found that these data sources are very reliable for the neighborhood data because for me i think about this and i wonder how can they get such accurate data for these small neighborhoods that's because of tax filing so for example data that is tied to the the ethnic mix it usually comes from the tax filing where people you know there's that checkbox that says you know would you like to say you're asian indian you know african american what are you right and you check that box and each year you file taxes and they know that you still live in that area because you file taxes using an address in that area how accurate are they well, at least 90% i mean they're not perfectly accurate and by the way this system is not a substitute for you going and physically checking out the neighborhood it's going to save you a humongous amount of time because you're not going to go to a bunch of properties that you shouldn't be buying but if you think that everything works and the system says thumbs up for everything then you need to have boots on the ground so now for an investor that's listening to the show today do they have to go through all of these different metrics that we talked about even the neighborhood ones or is it possible to just find a good city and that's good enough why might that not be good enough because every good city has really bad neighborhoods i mean phoenix is a phenomenal city to invest in but a mile from downtown which is a great area to invest in is the phoenix city jail and i can tell you i wouldn't be caught in that area after 5 pm you couldn't possibly get me to to go to that area because i might find a piece of metal lodged in my shoulder after 5 i mean so that every good place has nasty areas and unfortunately what's on sale on the web is often the crap that nobody else has bought right why is it on sale on the web why can't they just sell it to a local broker but that's because local people don't like that area so i know you have a saying where you buy for bad times and not for good times we're currently experiencing one of those bad times as of this recording and we're recording this on march 23rd 2020 and of course that's the covid-19 also known as coronavirus how do you specifically buy for bad times the first thing that you do is you use these 10 metrics right so use these metrics and you're buying in a in a significantly better place so that by itself is a is a huge advantage but i think that i don't want to over i i want to tell you that if you buy a good property it doesn't mean that you don't have to manage the heck out of it in a good time so i want to make sure robert that your listeners don't think that this is a magic bullet now we can just just relax and the answer is no in a in a bad time you have to manage the heck out of that property as well and so the point i'm trying to make is you're not done with your job simply by selecting a better product you then have a new job and which is to asset manage the heck out of your properties so we've taken hundreds of action items already at towards uh, our properties hundreds of them even though this crisis is only 3 to 4 weeks old and and that's because we we want to now aggressively manage asset manager i'd say the situation we're experiencing right now is a true black swan event which is just mm-hmm. an unpredictable event that is beyond what is normally expected and it usually has severe consequences how should real estate investors have been preparing themselves for this type of situation given that it's nearly unprecedented is it possible to even prepare for something like this no i think this is a true black swan no one could have or should have prepared for it these kinds of black swans are so rare and so unusual that if you prepare for every black swan like this you are not going to have an economy 
So no one should blame themselves thinking, I should have thought of this. Now, if you didn't start doing things in the last 30 days, then yeah, blame yourself because you saw it coming, right? We built a website called coronavirusrealestate.com. And if you go to that website, you will see us tracking numbers and you'll notice that we are tracking numbers, not just for the US. You'll go, wow, these people, Neil's team spent a huge amount of time and effort tracking these numbers. There's this big Excel spreadsheet on the website. You notice that it's got numbers for every single day, not just for the US, but for France and Spain and Germany and, and Italy. What were they doing? The answer is we were waiting to understand, to mathematically figure out when would the US experience what we know as the boom. So the way that these viruses work is that you get case, case, then cluster, cluster, and then boom. And obviously the boom in the United States took place in the last four or five days where we've had you know, our cases basically go up 8x in the last 10 days. So we were waiting for the boom because other countries were ahead of us. So we could actually predict when the boom would happen saying, on this date, we predict this will happen. On this date, we predict that we will have most of the country in lockdown. And what's funny was I made these, some of these videos early in, in March, and, and I predicted that the whole country would be in lockdown by March 25th. And you could not imagine the amount of flack I caught for this, Robert, because I've never really done anything that was even slightly political. And this wasn't political either. I was simply using a spreadsheet that's on coronavirusrealestate.com. You can see that spreadsheet. It's very nice. It's got lots of colors. Every country is in a different color. What that is showing is this exponential curve that this virus takes. Based on that, I predicted when the United States would have to either go into lockdown or end up killing 5 million people. And because I don't think we're going to kill 5 million people, I felt like there was a 100% chance of going into a lockdown. But I got flamed. This virus is the most dangerous event since World War II. It's more dangerous than 2008. It's more dangerous than 2001. It's more dangerous than the oil crisis. We have never faced an opponent and probably will never face an opponent again that can simultaneously fight us in 192 countries and get more powerful every single day. If this is the earth of the Avengers, this thing, it's Thanos. So we talk about how people couldn't prepare for this or know that it was coming and they shouldn't beat themselves up about it. I agree with that. But how about having adequate reserves? Are those the types of things that people should be doing? Should they have enough reserves set aside so that when things go wrong, not necessarily the coronavirus, but just vacancies or things like that pop up that they're able to cover it? You've hit the, the nail on the head. Today, we are sending out 12 updates for 12 of our properties. And I can tell you that we are leading with the fact that we have a lot of reserves. We're leading with that fact because we're telling our, here's words that I wrote earlier today for our, our investor updates. And we said, dear investor, please understand that for most of our properties, we have so much money in reserve that we don't get any rents at all for six months. And we still pay our mortgage without getting a loan deferment or defeasance, which now at this point, banks have offered loan deferment on you know, all of our value-add properties. They've already said, if you need that money, that option is there for you because that's now a federally mandated requirement. But even if we don't take that, we have the ability to run our properties for six plus months without you know, getting rent. And that puts my investors into a very good situation that they're not worried about their properties. They're not worried about their investment. And so you know, it shows the strength of real estate. It shows the comparison between real estate and the stock market. Because if you'd invest in the stock market, your stocks are now down 35 to 40% since last month. Where in real estate, nothing's really changed on properties that have already been purchased and are already occupied. 
Why would anything change? We're just going to hold through however long this process is. And yeah, we probably won't distribute cash to you for Q3 and probably won't distribute for cash for Q2 and, and Q3 and maybe, maybe not even for Q4. That's a very tiny, tiny thing compared to losing 30 or 40% of your principal. We're just talking about losing a portion of cash flow for a portion of one year. That's an extremely small amount of pain compared to losing 40% of your principal. I don't have a portfolio with hundreds of units in it. I don't have large apartment buildings, but my small portfolio, I, I do the same thing. I keep a large reserve balance. I personally don't take any cash out of the business. I always just keep the money there. And then eventually one day it'll come out, but I just keep the reserves. And we have nine months of reserves in there. So if we end up not getting any rent over the next six months, we'll be fine. Even nine months will be okay. And so I didn't know that this event was coming. Nobody knows, but setting yourself up by running a strong, healthy business is going to help you weather things like this. And also, I think that you need to have both offensive and defensive tactics. So our investors know that we're assessing our community's health regularly. In fact, we're doing it daily today. We're providing special resident services. We're telling them exactly where they can get information, what they should be doing in case they're infected. We're evaluating those at-risk tenants to see how that affects our communities. So these are all offensive tactics. We're doing a lot. We're spending a lot more money on leasing. We're doing online leasing initiatives. We're showing our units virtually. And then we're dealing with the delinquencies on an aggressive basis. And then there's defensive tactics, right? So we're limiting the interactions in our community. So parks are shut down. The clubhouse is shut down. The coffee and the donuts and the, and the cookies are no longer laid out. Our leasing office is closed. People are working from home. Our maintenance staff is only doing the sort of things that are emergency. If they were going to come and change out the battery in your smoke sensor, smoke alarm, they're now leaving it outside the door so that they're not infected. And then properties that we don't have to do unit turns, we've stopped doing unit turns. We're preserving that capital so we can use it later. And then also we've talked with our lenders already and we've said, hey, we might need deferment. And they're like, okay, if you need deferment, here's all the forms. Once you do that, then you stop hyperventilating. You said, you know what? I've done 50 or 60 different things and I'm not in such a bad position. Now I'm just going to sit and watch to see what happens. I've been getting asked by a lot of listeners of the show if they should continue buying rental properties right now, given the current economic environment that we're in. If someone is relatively new to investing, meaning they've done no deals yet, or they've done just a few, say one to three, would you recommend they look into acquiring rental properties right now? No. I would suggest that don't acquire anything for the next eight weeks. Eight weeks is a very small amount of time. Mid-May, you should start searching because in June, you're going to find deals, better deals than you can find today. Why that specific timeline? So two things will happen. In two months, two to three months, the apartment owners and the, the single family owners that were poorly capitalized, that was already on the edge, are going to start falling off. And some of them, their banks will let them know you better sell the property. So the guy doesn't want a default in his name. So he's going to put his property up for sale. And I may be wrong. It may, may not be two months. It may be three months. So I'd say mid-June is more likely than mid-May. But during, at that point, you'll see a lot of properties come to market. They'll be coming to market for prices that are substantially lower than the prices that you see in the market, that you've seen in the marketplace in February. So it doesn't make sense to buy anything today because you can buy them cheaper in three months. You've mentioned deferring your mortgage. And I've heard some programs that are potentially coming out where homeowners are going to be able to do that, whether you're a landlord or just a primary residence owner. You could defer that. Do you recommend that people take advantage of that? Because I've heard some people say, well, I have reserves and so I can use that money to cover this. But then I've also heard some people say that you should 
take advantage of that opportunity. Even if you have your reserves, you don't need to deplete your reserves if you have the opportunity to defer your mortgage without any hit to yourself. Where do you fall on that? I would defer. I, my job in a recession is not to maximize investor revenue. If you're somebody that wants to invest with me, please understand my philosophy. In a good economy where there's GDP growth, no recession, my job is to make you money. In a bad economy, my job is to preserve your capital, is to preserve your principal. And so I will take any option that I can get. And I mean, what's the downside? What does mortgage forbearance really mean? They take this month's mortgage and add it to the end. So maybe three years, five years, 10 years from now when my loan is ending, they add it over there. So now my loan is a few months longer. If it buys me insurance today and allows me to maintain cash flow, I'll take it. And in the grand scheme of things, I mean, a lot of people probably aren't even going to hold that mortgage to the end anyway. Honestly, as long as I can get through this without any damage to our properties, we're all going to make more money than we projected. Why? Look at the interest rates. They're ridiculous. They're completely obscene. Now, for the moment, believe it or not, apartment interest rates are going up because there's a lot of panic in that marketplace. But in four months, that panic will settle and we'll go back to being normal. And when that happens, we'll still have the low interest rates. Because once you cut interest rates, the Fed, once they cut interest rates, it usually takes them a year or more to pull them back. It usually takes them you know, two years. But even if we have a year, now we have a, a healthy, growing economy in Q4 where the interest rates are still really, really low. So a buyer really wants to buy this asset. And if I have the ability to refinance, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue that in Q4 or Q5. Now, how about the people that don't have to pay rent? I've read that the government has allowed people to not have to pay rent and not be evicted. How do you propose that small property owners, not people who own apartment buildings, but people that own small multis or even single families, how do you propose that they handle those types of situations? No, you have a number of options. Number one is go back to them and say, look, you know, I know you can't pay rent this month. How about I have two options for you? Number one, it's, you know, let's say you've got six months left on your lease and your rent is $1,000 each. I want to basically give you this entire month off if the government is not giving you money. By the way, here's all the places where you can get government money. But let's say the guy said, no, 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 for whatever reason, I can't get the money or I need it for food. Say, okay, well, I'm going to write a new lease. You get this month for free as long as next month onwards, your rent is 1200 bucks. So that way, the $6,000 that you owe me is now going to be distributed over the next five months and you can get this month for free. That's one option. The second option is you say, what I'm going to do is if you pay me half of your rent, I will allow you to use your deposit, which you've given me. Remember, you have $1,000 in deposit. I'm going to allow you to use 500 of that as the other half of your rent. And I'll, I'll modify my lease to have you so that you can do that. And then next month, you can again pay me 500 and we'll use the other half of your deposit. Now you have no deposit left because you used it, but at least I, you saved $500 in each of the last two months. Those are two strategies that are very powerful. So what is a common piece of real estate investing advice you often hear experts giving that you don't necessarily believe to be true? And how would you change that into good advice? I hear people saying all the time, we need a lot of housing in this country. We have a huge shortage of apartments. We have this, we have that. While technically that advice is right, everybody forgets to say one little piece of it. We only need all this extra housing as long as we have job growth, as long as we are not in a recession. In a recession, three, four, five, six million households end up bunking with mom and dad, living out of their car or going to a mobile home park. So all of those households disappear. Bottom line is, I don't like to say that we have a huge shortage of apartments in this market. 
I've only seen that happen in good times. So I'm, I'm a little concerned about that one. I really enjoyed all the information we've covered today on the show. But hearing all of this information and learning it is only one piece of the equation. The other part of the equation is, is actually taking action on what you learned today in this episode and actually putting it into use. So Neil, what is the number one thing you'd like the listeners of the show today to go take action on? You're about to see the best opportunity to buy real estate in the last nine years. But the problem is, unlike last time, you're not going to get years. You're going to get Q3 and you're going to get part of Q4. And then the seller is going to be in charge again. But for about four and a half months, the seller is going to be in charge. So make sure that you've figured out your cities and your neighborhoods and you've done all of that and you've contacted brokers and you're ready to go by June when your opportunity comes. That's why I gave you this system, not so that you can learn some of these concepts. Learning is not useful. Practice is all that matters. Yeah, I've been giving that advice as well to people is use this time to learn. Use this as an opportunity to really dive in, learn the material that you need to know so that you're ready and able to take advantage of all the opportunities that are coming. Well, there's blood in the water. Be a shark. Exactly. Absolutely. Neil, thanks again for joining me on the show. Where can the audience go to learn more about you and connect with you further? The best place is multifamilyu.com. That's multifamily followed by the letter u.com, where we have more than 50 webinars. We're actually going to do a series on coronavirus that's specific to each vertical. So we'll talk about you know, senior housing, student housing, impact on self-storage, impact on apartments. We're going to basically deep dive into each of these areas to get more detail from the experts. So uh, come to multifamilyu.com. Everything there is free. My email address is neil, N-E-A-L, at multifamilyu.com. Awesome. I'll be sure to put links to all those resources that Neil just mentioned in the show notes. I'll also put everything that we talked about throughout the episode in the show notes as well. I'll also add some books that are related to the different topics that we discussed so you guys could go read up on that further. Neil, thanks again for joining me. Thanks so much, Robert. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.